0: Welcome back to the Tiny Typecast. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. Every episode is an exploration about how the rich history of type and printing intersects with the present. Today, I'm pleased as punch to welcome Keith Houston, an author who has deconstructed punctuation and the form of the book in his multiple books, including a book called The Book, A Man After My Own Heart. The Tiny Typecast is brought to you by the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule, my other project. It's a collection of genuine type and printing artifacts from across nearly the last two centuries of putting metal into molds, carving wood as type, and pressing ink into paper. Each museum is a beautiful handmade wooden case with drawers that features dozens of artifacts, some from the 1800s and early 1900s, others from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, and others made fresh in just the last few months. A detailed curator's guide explains each artifact, like type molds and punch paper tape for monotype composition. And each museum includes the book Six Centuries of Type and Printing, a hot metal composed letterpress printed book by me created in England. That book is also available for separate pre-order and ships shortly. The museums also include a digital license for four recent movies about letterpress and printing history, and the full original alphabet numbers and punctuation from the Doves type font designed by Robert Greene from the legendary type Thrown into the Thames. You can order your own museum, a copy of the book, get an ebook version of Six Centuries of Type and Printing, or just find out more and see photos at tinytypemuseum.com. There's still about 20 museums left for pre order out of an edition that's going to number right about 100. And if you know someone ideal for this podcast series or would like to be a guest, please drop me a line at glenn at glennf.com. That's G L E N N at G-L-E-N-N-F-like-frank.com. I'm eager for suggestions. Now, on to the podcast. Welcome to the Tiny Typecast. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This podcast kind of looks at the history of printing as a thing that is present with us today. So I try to use the lens of the past to understand the present, and who better to talk with than Keith Houston, the author of the book Shady Characters, The Secret Life of Punctuation Symbols, and Other Typographical Marks, but more salient to this conversation, a book called The Book. Now, Keith, in his day job, writes medical imaging software, but he has a very strong hobby, as you can tell by these two tomes. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on. You are a writer who focuses deeply on things that I'm deeply interested in and I'm working on right now, in fact. And I thought we'd start with a basic question. You've got a book here Mm -hmm. that I'm looking at called The Book. The Mm -hmm. title is The Book. Keith, what is a book?
1: Uh, I think there are two answers. The one that I was interested in was what is a book from uh, the physical perspective? How do you describe this artifact or this, this artifact that we commonly call a book? So, for me, it was a case of looking at all of the strands, all of the sort of material uh, developments, all of the inventions, all of the innovations that came together such that we can have the modern paged book. I mean, I say the modern paged book, I guess. If you then look at the other perspective of what a book is, is it some kind of assemblage of content? Which has beginning and an end and is perhaps subdivided. And you can think of it more as the content that you'd expect to find in a physical book rather than the medium itself. So, so I was interested in everything that took us to the page book, the sort of the paper book that you go into a bookshop and buy. But then, equally, on the flip side of things, a book is an ebook, or rather, an ebook is a book in, in some other sense. It's made of bits and bytes rather than paper and ink and glue and so on. So there are definitely two different answers.
0: A number of years ago, uh, when blogs were a big thing, remember when blogs were a big deal? You still, mm-hmm. still have oh, yeah. to blog. <laughs> I still post occasionally. I know, and we'll tell people that your blog is shadycharacters.co.uk. So they can read, uh, read entries there dating back years. But there was a company that was doing this book publishing project for, as kind of a, I wouldn't say blog vanity publishing, but they would take your blog entries. You could export them from whatever we were using, Frontier Outline or who knows what then. Mm-hmm. And they would make a book. And my problem with the book they made, I don't know that I ordered one, I think people posted photos, was the book wasn't very booky. Like, And I realized there was a bookiness about things that are books. And I think your your book, The Book, defines that is it didn't meet either of the criteria. Well, I shouldn't say that. It didn't meet some of the criteria on one side and some on the other. So a collection of blog entries is not a book. You didn't take shitty characters and, and throw it into a book. And I've read a lot of books that were derived from blogs but they had to be rewritten to fit the expectations people have of a book as a work but also this company made books that they didn't feel very booky, in that they Mm -hmm. didn't have running heads the way they divided pages there are things about it you look at it and say well this is a piece of uh, a stack of paper that's been bound with a cover but it it's not really a it doesn't feel like a book even though it is very book like oh yeah
1: yeah i think what you're describing is the is what leads towards the sort of the conventional description of a book. I remember when I first started putting the manuscript together from Shady Characters. I, in fact, before I even started the blog, I thought I would like to write a book. And out of my hubris, I just started doing it. And so Shady Characters, the blog, was a bunch of, kind of <laughs> uh, draft chapters for a book that, that existed only in my head that I just divided into parts and posted on the web. And so it was quite gratifying that it eventually did then inform the actual book of shady characters. But when it came to putting together the manuscript for the, the real book, there was there was so much there's so much furniture, there's so much convention. There you know, you know, first you have the, the half title page and then you have the title page and the copyright page uh goes before the half title. I can't remember the order, but just there are so there's so much stuff that goes around that surrounds the actual block of text in the middle, as you say, running heads. Page numbers. Some of it's related to the physical nature of the book. You need page numbers because otherwise you just get lost in a paged book. Uh, running heads have a similar function. Of course, you had what were called, I think, was it catchwords that printers used to use to make sure that they they, they you know they they had the signatures of. Book.
0: Oh yeah, yeah, and they put it at the bottom of a page, like an extra word, and no one noticed it because it was a convention. But it meant that that word in the next page would have the following. Right. So the, the conventions have changed, but
1: the, the function is still the same. It's to make it easy to navigate through the book. And then you have all the legalities, you know, who who owns this book, who wrote it, who provided the illustrations. Um, and so a, a book, I guess, the the thing that you go to a bookshop to buy has layers and layers of kind of publishing history and printing technique and technologies bound up, well, there you go, metaphorically and physically bound up in it.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, you can't avoid uh, book metaphors and printing metaphors when you talk about it. I constantly talking about something being typecast. I'm like, no, not literally, the figur- figuratively, <laughs> but no, actually also literally in the case I was talking about. Yeah. And But that sense that we've been, we've almost been socialized to expect what a book is. So when you pick up something and it's in a book format, but it is not booky, something goes wrong in your head. I don't think you have to be, um, this is always the criticism with graphic design that people, sometimes I was trained as a graphic designer and sometimes people say, well, graphic design is <laughs> for fancy stuff. It's for stuff people don't see or notice. Like, no, in fact, it's for stuff that people do notice, but they can't articulate. They notice that at a level below that, which without training, they would be able to analyze and say why they do something. So it encompasses legibility and format, but also expectations. So the bookiness is tied up with graphic design, and that, you know, if I'm a book designer, which I have been, I learn both by observation and by training mm-hmm. what things people expect so that when they open it, they don't go, This is not a book. I don't know what I'm holding. Yeah, than. I
1: think um, some, I remember buying one. Print-on-demand book, which sounds similar to the ones that you were talking about earlier, the the blogs as books, and I definitely had a feeling that it was put together by someone who had understood that print-on-demand was a thing that existed and a thing to be made money from, or to be made money with, and they had decided to reprint these old books, but they hadn't really done them justice. I think maybe some of the conventions, I think the book I bought was a good hundred or hundred fifty years old, and some of the conventions had changed that felt a little bit odd. Still felt like a book, but it was definitely start, you know. The, the conventions that I expected to see were definitely starting to fray around the edges. And then separately, you sometimes see um ebooks or other self-published books. And it's it's apparent that it's, it's a DIY job. And the person publishing it hasn't mm-hmm. really, you know, they, what they should have done is gone out and bought the Chicago Manual and followed its description of what has to be in a book and in what order and so on. But maybe they're winging it. It's a kind of sort of cargo cult representation of what a book is. And some of the conventions are there, but some aren't, and other ones are, you know, messed up or in the wrong place. So it's always quite interesting to, to pick a book into. In fact, actually, that's the thing that then struck me at the end of this huge publishing bo- process. I, don't, I, I think it's very difficult for a single person to do it. There was With shady characters and the book, of course, there was, a, there was an editor, there's a copy editor, there's a proofreader, there's a graphic designer, there's a typographer, uh, and there was the person that managed all the production. All of these things had to happen to produce something which was recognisably a book that that conformed to our expectations of what the book had to look like. It only takes one of those people to to be absent or to do their their job badly, and suddenly the thing you have just is a bit odd. It just doesn't quite fit.
0: That's a wonderful way to put it too. Uh, I heard Stephen Fry do a Q and A after he directed his first movie, and he said this amazing thing, which was being a director is like you know it's kind of like running a not just running a company, but it's kind of like running a I don't know some kind of complicated operation. He said you need to you know you need to know about chemistry, photography, optics, writing, editing, acting. He listed off this whole thing, and you know I don't think there's a similar role. I think even editor in publishing is one fulcrum, but there's also the production coordinator or printer. Uh, you know you you mentioned all the people in the front end of that, and then there's when this when your book goes to a printer when it's being physically printed as yours were as well as electronically available there's 100 people or a thousand or maybe mm-hmm. 10 depending on the size of the operation who are all specialists there's very few generalists in printing anymore who are doing all the things that have been done for hundreds of years but in a new format this this reminds me of one element you know the half title page you mentioned that in passing and I, I was trained to talk, call it the the <laughs> bastard half title and I don't even know why actually you know that's what old printers taught it's and it's called it's you know it's the half title the bastard half title there's other names for it i only learned recently that uh, the reason it even exists. Why, you know, why should you have a page before your title page that has the name of the book very simply on it? And it's because it was cut out. Hmm. It was the head of the book block separate from the book because binding, buying a book with binding is a late stage book convention. It's only become common under hmm. the last century and a half or something. So you would get a book block and you would cut that out and paste it on the spine or it would be bound to the spine, something like that. But that was your protective page for your book block. I'm like, oh, and we still do it. It's a vestigial thing. To some degree, most
1: of the... No, that, actually, that's probably completely unfair. Uh, <laughs> I think there are certainly some conventions that, <laughs> uh, that have hung around that are maybe a little bit past their, their use-by date. But it's 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 a fair point that are just the writing of the book. And I guess maybe even to some degree, the division of labour involved in writing the book. You say they're in printing, there are, no, there are no generalists anymore. The feeling I got with publishing is that maybe some people have to become generalists to some degree. I'm not sure there's necessarily mm. as much money as there was in publishing to support all of these dedicated roles. And certainly you can tell that when a publication, for example, decides right. to dispense with a with a copy editor or a proofreader, and suddenly, you know, the the news articles or whatever start to start to feel a little bit a little bit clunky or just like they weren't properly proofread. So I I do I do wonder if some perhaps not in publishing, but perhaps in other Related disciplines, generalizing is the only way to to continue.
0: No, I think it's also the the case that people make this assumption that because it's easier to produce a book, there's so many more books being uh, unique books being produced, both in print and you know primarily electronically. Mm-hmm. I think that's where the bulk of new books come from. Uh, even though, and I think there's this misnomer too or a mistaken impression, the book industry is larger than it ever has been, and people, the printed part of it is is huge, and the overall part of it is huge uh including ebooks mm-hmm. ebooks have flattened off in sales they are no longer growing at the rate they are so we actually have a fairly stable market and i think people think books have gone away is one thing but but the other is that because of the ease of e-publishing that it seems like maybe there are fewer functions that are needed and yet the the process is the same even making an ebook i find is often extremely hard to make an ebook that is correctly readable uh, in in mm-hmm. pdf format that's generally easy uh, you know typically very easy but then in EPUB on multiple readers and then in Mobi or the Kindle formats. So even those aspects, I still sometimes consult specialists, even for my own small publishing and at large publishing houses, they have a huge number of people dealing with the electronic publishing issues because it is harder than printing a book. Printing a book is easy. Because printers know how to do it, making an ebook is hard, and I think people would think it was not. <laughs> I mean, you can make a bad ebook very easily, as I'm, I'm sure you've tried, as I have. But you know, one of the things talking about conventions, I love to. to um, we can dive into kind of the middle of your book, the book, and talk about Gutenberg a bit because I've just spent, uh, I, I've been researching and reading about Gutenberg for a couple years now, much more intensely than I had in the past. I kind of knew things about him and what we knew about him. And then in the last few months, I've been writing a book called Six Centuries of Type and Printing that is for this tiny type museum project. And the more I learn about Gutenberg, the more I realize two things. One, how mm-hmm. little we know for sure about him. I keep coming closer and closer to the truth that so much is supposition uh, or reverse engineering. Um, and so that's always fascinating, even though some new material about him continues to be discovered even uh, you know f- six centuries later almost. We we find new paperwork shows up in a book or something. But the other is not just how brilliant he apparently was at pulling a lot of things out of seemingly thin air to create this seamless process and produce a good looking book, but also the conventions, the books that he made, and, and even just a few years later with uh, Fust and Scherfer and using basically his equipment, and then you know in in Venice a few years after that, the things that they were doing between about fourteen. Fifty and fourteen seventy five. They made the book, and we're just reenacting that book. Did that surprise you when you were studying this area? How settled aspects of the book have been for so long. It did.
1: I I gave a talk at the the British Library uh, a couple of weeks ago, and in doing so, I had I went back through some old notes and um, was looking for some for some nice images to illustrate different aspects of the of well, basically the history of the book. And I used an image of a book uh, printed by Aldus Manutius in Venice, and what I think was the early 16th century, the mm-hmm. very early 16th century. And it's, he, he, I think this was, this was he'd gone. I, I think this was after he'd, he'd had his italic phase, where he printed everything in italics. But it was, it was remarkable. It, right. it, it uh, barring barring the fact that I think it was in ancient Greek it was not in any way unconventional it, you know it just was not a surprising page to look at and fine you know this the, the, it doesn't mean that he he came to he came to set up conventions that everyone immediately followed but certainly barring a few odd bits and pieces with yeah y- your average book of fiction or average book of narrative nonfiction doesn't look hugely different or, or rather your average page from, from within the text block doesn't look massively different to the way it did 3 or 400 years ago and that's that's pretty staggering. that's um, I think that says a lot about how the form of the book informs how you lay it out. There are only you know there are only so many things you can do with a with a rectangular piece of paper. And there are only so many things you can do with the size <laughs> of that piece of paper as well before it becomes unwieldy. So Aldous pioneered the pocketbook, you know, a kind of small portable book and, and that was in some way mass produced. It was still very expensive, but it was it, you know he he tried to make books more affordable. Um, in part by making them smaller, but you can only make them so small before you can't read them. The type has to be a particular size because our arms are a particular length, and uh, you know, a book is comfortable to size, comfortable to hold at one particular size, which means that uh, the sort of the you know the size of the text in your visual field has to be a you know has to be within a particular range. And so, in some ways, the the form of the book is just a natural evolution of how easy it is to read our alphabet. And the size and shape of humans in general. Initially, the, the materials we used were, were important as well, because uh, if you're if you're skinning a cow to make a, a bit of parchment, then you get a roughly rectangular bit of parchment out of it, which is why books tended to start out being rectangular. Oh, right. but ultimately, it just, in particular, the the European uh, paper sizes are really good at being folded in half and staying nice and robust. The ratio between the height of the book, the length of the spine, and the width of the pages means that a rectangular book is a good size to have. It's nice and robust. And beyond that, everything just kind of falls naturally out of who we are as humans and uh, what what size we are and the materials we have to hand.
0: Yeah, our perceptions are of a certain scale. I mean, there's a a profession Mm. or academic discipline called psychophysics, which I I discovered several years ago in looking into those terrible, the Turing puzzles, the CAPTCHAs. And uh, and whether those would one day be broken, and the answer several years ago was yes, they would, and now they have been basically. <laughs> but I talked to a psychophysicist, and the and the field is studying essentially essentially studying how the physiological basis of human perception and in different ones. And this person was a specialist in um, you know visual acuity or visual perception. And there is a point at which you know there's a reason three point type is not something we read comfortably. <laughs> there's a but there's also a reason that we don't typeset books in eighteen point type and you know, some of it is cost. You don't want an 18 point mm. book because it would take a thousand, thousand pages instead of, you know, 200 to reproduce the text. But the other is comfort in reading extended periods of text at the distance we hold it. So, you know, at some level, this is always, the uh, man is the measure of all things, right? And, and you have to say that the hand, humanity's hand and arm length in <laughs> eyeballs, like mm. type is not something developed by nature or something uh, per se, or something that comes outside of ourselves. The size of type, the legibility of type is a direct response to our ability to read it. So there's this remarkable feedback loop, but, but we hit a steady state uh-huh. five, six centuries ago about that. And I mean, I think that predates it. You know, your your book goes into, I think I was surprised when reading your book, the biggest surprise I got from it. I learned a lot of interesting information developments. I understood arc of history better, but I don't think I understood how typical the, the codex or book format was before... Say the Gutenberg era. I assumed it was something that evolved naturally from this production of pages, and I think it tells us something that the codex goes back so far, or manuscripts written by hand. The same thing that they all have a certain property. Did you find that in the in the research as you go back? You know, you look at say we have a type size you can measure thing and things in points, mm-hmm. but was handwriting or other means of expressing ourselves does that fall into a certain range? It does seem to. What
1: I find quite interesting was that the Egyptians um started making papyrus probably about uh five thousand years ago, maybe a little bit earlier, and they seem to have just pulled it out of nowhere mm. uh, one you know there there was no papyrus and then there was and they were making papyrus <laughs> sheets which were about the same size as a piece of um a four or u s letter paper so already at this of you know the the dawn of what we might consider to be or the birth of the ancestor of our alphabet they were already using pieces of parchment which were about the same size as a fairly typical piece of paper nowadays but the odd thing was so they hilarious. did not start binding these into books they went straight ahead and uh, started gluing them together into scrolls the scroll, I mean, the scroll is older than the book. The scroll is the scroll was 3,000 years old by the time the page book came along. And in all of those 3,000 years, it never, well, I mean, or it certainly it didn't, if, if anyone invented, um, independently invented the codex before it finally came along, it didn't stick. So there's a good 3,000 years of this one convention, which was, we're going to write in columns, which are maybe a few inches across, and we're just going to keep on writing and keep on writing and keep on writing until we hit the end of a scroll. And then there was a whole host of there were a whole host of conventions about how scrolls were structured. So you you didn't write in the back of a scroll, for example, because that meant you're always rolling it and unrolling it the same way.
0: You didn't write transversely though, right? Scrolls were always written weren't they always written across yeah, the length right. of it, so, not Yeah, that's right. So transversely. Yeah.
1: So you see a lot of illustrations from the medieval period where people are holding scrolls vertically, you know, one hand. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, and it's 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 um it's probably large well, It's largely inaccurate when it comes to how scrolls were used from day to day. One interesting thing I remember reading about was that the... It it turns out it's quite difficult to to read a scroll. When I was writing the book, I bought some papyrus online, because you can do this now, and I glued my papyrus sheets together into a scroll and rolled it up. And it's a pain to read it. The book has this nice property that um, if it's large enough and flexible enough, it'll just open itself. And even if it doesn't hold itself even if it doesn't keep itself open, it's relatively easy to hold it in one hand and to flip through it with the other. So the first thing with the scroll is that you've got to unroll it from one hand and roll it up in the other. So you're kind of, you have this constant shuffling back and forth to find what you're looking for. And you just, you you cannot let go of either end because then it just rolls itself up in a, in a semi-unhelpful way. But it turns out that the, the Romans often would get, well, not often, but certainly some some Romans who had the means to do so would, would use this uh, kind of device, which was basically a desk with little holes in it for pegs. And they would take these wooden rods and clamp one to the end of the scroll so that they could hold the scroll open on the desk and read it um, hands free, so to speak. And then they could roll it back oh. and forth between the pegs. This, this form of book was so, was so inconvenient in some ways that people had to invent furniture to make it possible to use it. And yet it took us a good 2,000 years, 3,000 years rather, after the scroll was invented before the page book um, started to make itself felt. So, so that surprised me.
0: The page book comes before the invention of paper is widespread. Sorry, before the use of paper is widespread, the codex appears even though it's using other kinds of material that, uh, than, uh, you know, rag-based paper, that is. Oh, certainly,
1: yeah. So paper was invented in China around about uh, the 2nd century BCE, I think. And it took quite a long time to, to become common across in, in the West, basically. But yeah, the page book. So it seems that... Well, as far as far as I can tell as far as, as far as historians are willing to say, it looks like what happened was that there was a war in Egypt between uh, the the Ptolemies and uh, some Greeks basically a particular a particular tribe of the Greeks um, who lived and what well, had occupied large parts of what's now Turkey and Syria oh. <laughs> and they kept on they kept on fighting over the same piece of land and at one point these uh, Greeks got so annoyed with with the the Egyptians that they invaded. And so Egypt was occupied. And this meant that uh, the place that made all the papyrus, which was Egypt, suddenly stopped exporting it. And ah. yeah, so the, the story goes that this other Greek kingdom, which was in the east of Turkey, called Pergamon, uh, the, the king, or I mean, some you know, an underling, uh, invented parchment such that they could have an alternative writing surface. And uh, this is sort of held up as being maybe the starting point of the page book. But, but to be honest, you can make a page book out of papyrus more or less as well as you can make a page book out of parchment. And although most of the most of the books that people seem to care about or imagine that are important, uh, most of the early books that they imagine are important are made of parchment, actually a lot of the first ones that we found, a lot of the oldest ones that they know about are made of papyrus. There's no real, well, no one has sort of supremacy over the other when it comes to being the material of which the first page books were made, and so arguably, the material itself doesn't really have anything to do with it. Parchment and papyrus were similar enough so that it kind of didn't matter which one you used to make a
0: book. And right, and you know, there, and the simultaneous invention issue too is uh, the Mayans invented mm. a form of paper or something that they used to write on, and they had uh, a book kind of thing. Like I think it was a folded; it was more like a folded book as opposed to a bound or you know tied item. That was in uh, I think it's the fifth century CE. yeah, that's right around the fifth century CE. They had and so it was um, totally disconnected, obviously mm-hmm. from European or uh, Asian culture. and obviously a good format. I mean, I guess that comes into the we don't need to get all um, uh, functional structure of the brain kind of thing, but I think you can you can do that a bit where you say uh, we're the fact that there's a persistent format that that a four today and a four five thousand years ago, Seem like about the right size is amazing to me. But then we're roughly the same size. Maybe we're a little bigger, but our eyeballs work the same way. We haven't changed fundamentally. So there has to be there have to be some sorts of deep structures of which the representation that bubbles up comes in the form of paper and mm. and type. The, the simultaneous invention of movable type is also an interesting issue. I, you know, I've, I'd read a bit about it before, and I went and did again a deep dive on that because uh, it's a very small part of my book. But I wanted to. Understand uh, where it's at, and you covered this in in the book to some extent. But you know Gutenberg is always attributed as the inventor, movable type. And you and I know, and most people, I think, know that he may have invented it himself. Like he may not have seen mm-hmm. any previous method from which he relied, except goldsmith tools and things that were in use in metalsmithing. There are other people before him who created something similar or had a similar effect, and that's documented. There are books that exist with it. There are contemporary accounts. It's just the key thing seems to be nothing else caught fire. And I mean, I think that comes up, um, as you are saying, with different kinds of uh, of elements mm. of the evolution of the book and with printing, is that someone comes up with a great idea and you think, wow, I wonder why why didn't that ignite in uh, 1041 mm. CE in China? Why didn't Bishang's clay types make a change? Uh, Korea yeah. had metal movable types in the early 1200s and printed a bunch of books. And then that appears to, they were inv- invaded, so maybe that lost the history. But you know why Gutenberg? Why then? Did you ever come up with a sense from your research? Uh, how come Gutenberg? How come then?
1: Um, it's a good question. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that I came up with anything. You're which, not alone. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I came up with anything which which could explain why Gutenberg. Why it worked then? But I think one of the one of the common themes is that it didn't work earlier because perhaps the alphabets were wrong. So both China and Korea had. Big, big not on well, non alphabet alphabets, big, big scripts. You know, you need to you're talking thousands of characters, distinct characters, in order to write a book. In fact, remember going to the Gutenberg Museum in Mainz in Germany, and aside from all the other cool stuff they had, they had a case of Chinese movable type and Oh my gosh. Yeah, it wasn't like the it wasn't like the cases of movable type that you associate with the Latin alphabet, you know maybe you've got a, maybe, maybe the absolute outside, you've got an uppercase and a lowercase and each one is about the same size as a kind of standard desk. This was, this this fully enclosed you. It was like a, a booth that you walked into and it was just drawer after drawer after drawer of type. And so it was just, it seems that it was just impractical. Even if you have all of the technologies that Gutenberg had, even if you have his hand mold and his ink and uh, paper and the printing press and so on, it would probably still have been too impractical at that point to print in say Chinese or Korean or Japanese using movable type. In fact, it seems that uh, the Japanese in particular persisted with wooden block books for quite a long time. So you just have the same size as the page that you want to print. A calligrapher takes a sheet of waxed paper. They use a brush to, to paint or to write the characters. You flip that over and press it onto the wood block and then you carve away all of the white space between the characters, and you use that to print the entire page. And that was that was enough. It was more efficient to do that than it was to cast all of the all of the different uh, movable type okay. sorts. And so that seems to be that seems to be why movable type didn't take off in the East. I'm not sure that necessarily explains why it took off in the West, but you can certainly chalk off the alphabet as being a problem It's far easier. I think Gutenberg cast a few hundred characters at the outside as opposed to, you know, many thousands to print a book of a similar size. So that's certainly one reason, one thing that made it easier for
0: him. And you can see that through to the digital age too, is that it's, is, you know, no one knows if that's for sure, because you can't prove Mm. a negative. You can't go to, you know, 1100 CE and say, hey, um, whoever, uh, you know, leader of China or whatever, why not use this method more extensively? Oh, it's, you know, it's such a pain in my sores, they would say. I think it seems valid because once you move forward, like once Gutenberg invents his method, and it spreads very widely, very fast, you'd think this reaches China, Korea, Thailand, other countries in Asia that have had previous experience in, or in Japan making woodblock carved book pages and uh, or previous experiments with movable type. Korea seems to have remembered it, like there seems to be an institutional or country memory that this existed because it was never mm. lost there, uh, the idea of it. and And yet, even when that happens, it doesn't break out into a great printing explosion. It takes mm-hmm. centuries for those countries to do it. And then in the digital era, you see it happening with phototype a bit too. I think phototype was uh, complicated because of keyboard wow. entry. And then you have it in the digital era where it took a long time. I heard a lecture in the uh, middle of uh, 2018 at TypeCon by a Chinese font foundry head who came and gave this amazing talk about the challenges it still face representing Chinese uh, logograms and designing for, and I was thought this is amazing. You know, we are we are six hundred, you know, almost six hundred years from Gutenberg. There are still issues with representing logograms. Uh, the Google's Noto project to put everything in mm-hmm. Unicode in a one similarly designed typeface. That's a massive undertaking that's cost many millions of dollars. It's now seven or eight years old. So, arguably, the proof is that we that that folks who write in these languages are still having these issues with large characters. that's now that they would have had in larger. Uh, as a larger problem uh, centuries or millennia ago. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. I find it quite gratifying. I've been writing on the blog about emoji of late. Oh, yes. And emoji only exists because of the difficulties in representing the Chinese character set, well, Chinese, Japanese, and Korean, because that was the germ of the foundation of Unicode and you know unicode as you know being the being the body that it, it's it's a little bit a little bit of a simplification to say that it decides what characters we can type but it's certainly one of the the gates in the standardization process in getting characters onto into the standard character sets but that organization only only came about because it was hard even to get the computers to talk to each other even when you have this you know software is infinitely mutable it shouldn't be impossible to deal with multiple character sets um, across different computers, but we just didn't. The, you know, we were happy to be kind of linguistically siloed, even in the computer age for quite a while. I think it's the early '90s that Unicode was uh, was finally formed. And having done that, having finally got this single character character set or encoding deployed across more or less all of the world's computers, now finally emoji works because there is a single body that can say, "Yep, this is a reasonable icon to have as an emoji." therefore it can now be entered on any different uh, device of course there's a whole other problem which is you're not just dealing with an existing character set or an existing script every time a new emoji comes along google has to design a new version facebook has to design a new version whatsapp has to design a new version uh, twitter has to design a new version so it's a whole other set of problems but i find it i, I find it quite gratifying that it's such that everyone who rails against um emoji as being some sort of degenerate form of language arguably it's an enlightened form of language it's one that we're inventing we're inventing as we go it's quite quite different to anything that's come before and it can only happen because of this um, shared or rather divided history of of you know t- t- movable type for example making it not not impossible making it very difficult uh, or rather it being very difficult to apply the different character sets so now that we can finally we're doing really interesting things now we can finally stop or at least we can reduce our our worries about unique character sets and we can do something interesting and new and creative
0: yeah i was going to say the irony too is now that i could print emoji to photopolymer plates and letterpress print emoji and take it it full circle and i mean i guess that's a question that's kind of the final question is you know what's the what having written about the book so extensively and and we're talking about the evolution of it and ebooks and and how emoji has emerged as a communication alternative almost with lots of uh and, and folks you should go to shadycharacters.co.uk and read keith's in-depth multi-part so far multi-part uh, and, and with parts still to come of um, mm, are. the history and nature of them i would say soon to be a major motion picture but they already made the emoji <laughs> movie so
1: and apparently it was terrible so let's not say that
0: <laughs> that's what I, that's a poo pile of poo emoji insert here so given that we have a mode of online communication that is very hard to represent in some fashion in printing, and we have ebooks. We have this kind of evolving video culture. There were, you know, there was a um, vine, and TikTok mm-hmm. is the big thing now. There are all these modes of expression that are entirely new. And, and as I said earlier, the book industry continues to grow. It's very slight growth now, but it's not like people aren't reading books. In fact, more mm-hmm. people are reading more books and more different books uh, than ever before. And more different books are published each year, new, fresh, different books than have ever been published. And in fact, I think in the last 10 years, some multiple of all different books ever published <laughs> ever in time have been produced. And probably in the next two years, that number will increase again. It'll be all books ever before that. So with all that in place, what is the future of the book? Do we continue to have a codex-like thing that persists in a, in a totally different culture? Is there some place you see a merger or, or a sharing that can cross that, that boundary?
1: <sighs> wow, uh, that's a really good question. I don't know.
0: Or does it? I could also ask, does it need to? I mean, you've just done this in-depth study of emoji, and it's a very different... It, emoji don't... I mean, I know people have published books that are entirely in emoji, but at some level, that's a, that's a, a trick. It's like a device. Hmm. It's not like we will suddenly have books only in emoji, and that's going to be a dominant publishing mode. But it feels like we're on divergent reading and, and communication paths. I know every century says that. Every generation says it. Well, the kids today, they won't understand because they don't do X. And as they say, the book industry is bigger than it ever was, et cetera, et cetera. So are there maybe two divergent paths And the book and things like books are one path and some kinds of online communication, not just the length being brief or being on mm-hmm. a web page, is that just going to diverge maybe? I think it,
1: it maybe goes back to the idea that there are two different ways to define a book. You can look at it as being the the physical artifact, plus all of the conventions that go along with it, as you said, running heads, yeah. page numbers, the half title, the title page, copyright page, and so on. So that's one notion of a book. That's, that's, that's a device that exists to hold information and convey information. And that information tends to take a particular form. And then that's the other definition of the book. It is the information that we convey. And I suppose what we might expect is that The physical incarnation of the book and the types of things that we tend to represent in the of the type of books, the type of content that we tend to write for publishing within physical books probably isn't going to change a huge amount. Um, If anything, I can see it the book becoming a bit like vinyl in the same way that, um, Uh. you know, records are, are fashionable and cool in a way that CDs never wear. And even if everyone is listening to Spotify, then the, the, the record industry is still, you know the physical vinyl industry is still quite healthy. Um, I, wonder if, I wonder if the physical book publishing industry will go that way. But then I suppose that the thing that all of these digital representations, not just the books, but other types of communication. If you start, at, if you talk about text, you can have a book at one end and a tweet at the other. Or you could have you can have the now defunct social network Emoji, which allowed you to uh, which allowed you to only communicate <laughs> using emoji. So if that's at the absolute other end, you have this whole continuum of things in the middle, which has always been true. You've always had books and newspapers and magazines and pamphlets and broadsides and so on. So we've always had this kind of spectrum of different kinds of writing. So I can't imagine that that spectrum is ever going to go away. But it might become richer and more yonsted and more interesting and it will have more branches because we have these at the moment, flat screens of particular sizes on which you can display anything. So I, I think the physical book is, is here to stay for a very long time. Who on earth knows what's going to happen with digital written communication? I don't know. And as you see, you then add in Vine and or, or you know, um,
0: what was Vine and TikTok and so on. I really have no idea. I think that's the best conclusion, though, right, is, <laughs> is whenever people try to come up with a definite idea about the future, they're always wrong. But it's also never bet against the book, never get against analog media because it it seems to persist in in some form because people want, again, we come back to the thing, what is the book made for? It's made for our hand, it's made for our eye. And whether it's analog or digital, I think there's kind of an integrity to a thing that is booky, that that lacks in other formats. But folks, you can find Keith Houston at shadycharacters.co.uk where you can read about Emoji, Winky face, cash bag. uh, I don't know what comes next. Or get his books. The book, cover to cover exploration of the most powerful object of our time, which is wonderful because the book deconstructs itself as you read it. And shady characters, a secret life of punctuation, symbols, and other typographical marks. Keith, thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the tiny typecast. Subscribe in your favorite podcast app to get future episodes automatically. Tell your friends and visit tinytypemuseum.com for more information about the Tiny Type Museum and Time Capsule and to find episodes of this podcast. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman. This podcast was recorded in 2019 and aired in February 2020. The podcast is copyright 2019 and 2020 by A Periodical LLC. It is licensed under Creative Commons CC by NC 4.0. Please feel free to distribute this podcast intact. Thanks for listening.